When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Lynn Alden, and I'm here with Marcelo Lopez from L2 Capital, uh, and we're going to talk about the uranium sector. Uh, so, Marcelo, welcome to Real Vision. Hi, Lynn. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you again. Um, I've been following your macro analysis for a while now, and I'm a real fan of your work. And, and thanks, Real Vision, for the invitation. Uh, yeah, so to get started, I guess, tell us a little bit about your background and what makes you so interested in the uranium sector uh, at this time. Sure. Well, uh, I, I should start by saying that I'm also an, an engineer, and uh, it all started when I was doing the training program at Lloyds Bank in Brazil in the late 90s, and the Russian crisis happened, and the long-term capital management went belly up. As you can suspect, Brazilian stocks crashed big time, and I thought it was the best time to start an investment fund focused on Brazilian equities. So I resigned from Lloyds Bank and started my first investment fund at the end of 1998. And this fund returned over 200% to investors in, in less than a year and a half. And uh, it, unfortunately, not because it was brilliant, it's just the opportunity was uh, too great. Uh, then after that, I thought the market was a bit toppy and I needed more knowledge. So I closed the fund, returned the money to investors and went to Spain to do my MBA. After the MBA, I went to Finland to do my specialization in finance. And after that, I moved to London and I worked for a big hedge fund called Gartmore. Uh, it was later acquired by Henderson Global Investors uh, until the end of 2006. Uh, I believe I, uh, I, I have found a great investment opportunity then, which was real, uh, real estate market in Brazil. So again, uh, I left my job and decided to invest in real estate markets and I co-founded the company that went to grow into one of the biggest real estate firms in Brazil. Uh, today, this company is owned by Julius Baer and is a reference in the country. And uh, in 2013, I decided to go back to the financial markets and I founded L2 Capital, an asset management company. The idea was to focus on opportunities globally and look for asymmetric investment themes. So um, we look for trades uh, in which we have an information edge and, um, and we are not afraid of concentration. We, we actually embrace it to, together with volatility. Um, so, uh, well, that, that's the story. And, uh, and, and uranium is simply the most asymmetric trade I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, I, I started covering uranium uh, last autumn. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I cover a, a bunch of different asset classes 
And I had been, you know, hearing about uranium for a long time, looking into some extent, uh, and but I finally did a deep dive on it and saw that, you know, the, the opportunity set there was really good. And one of the advantages of it is that it's, it, in many ways, is very uncorrelated to a lot of other assets, including uh, several other commodities. It, do, it doesn't kind of trade in that broad reflation theme in quite the same way. It's really kind of its own supply and demand cycle. And of course, as as you know, anyone managing a portfolio, having something that's really uncorrelated. Uh, is, is really helpful when they when they kind of build out their diversification plan, and so you know with uranium, of course, what we're talking about is is uh, you know nuclear energy uh, mainly for electrical uh, you know uh, use case, and so tell us a bit about uh, you know why are prices so low and why why is the market starting to wake up now? Do you think? Sure. Um, well, if I just step back for a moment and, and tell people why invest in uranium because I think it's an important uh, uh, thing. Uh, for, for people who don't know uranium too well, uranium is the fuel that powers nuclear reactors. And nuclear reactors provide clean, safe, and reliable energy. So the investment thesis in uranium is quite simple. Uh, you have demand increasing, supply decreasing, the end buyer is almost indifferent to the price it pays, and the price is very wrong. Um, uranium prices have gone up last year from around $25 to $30 a pound. But our calculations show that the price has to go to at least $60 to bring equilibrium to this market. And we have mapped every single uranium mine on the planet. Now, uh, in, in terms of demand, we predict that it should go by around 2% per year for the next few years. It might seem low, but it is a growing industry. And we've been draconian to our numbers. Uh, we did not include anything that is proposed. And, and just so you know, there are more than 350 nuclear reactors proposed today. Uh, and, and on the other hand, we, we include all reactors that might be the commission. And, and that's an important point, uh, that there might be a surprise in this industry, not only because of the number of reactors that are being built, uh, which is over 50 today, but also because of the delayed shutdowns, which, as I mentioned, are very important. Uh, so uh, a couple of years ago, I went to Spain to talk to the few buyers there, and they were telling me that uh, all the nuclear reactors in Spain were scheduled to shut down last year. And uh, all of them got extensions to 2027 and, and some up to 2035. So it means up to 15 years of uranium demand that was not on anyone's numbers. Same thing in France. Uh, France was going to shut down 14 nuclear reactors in 2025, and they got extensions to 2035. Same thing with Mexico, Russia, the US, and, and many others. So uh, reactors that should have a life of 40 years are getting extensions to 60, uh, 80, and, and there are discussions now to increase the life of a few reactors to up to 100 years. Uh, and, and now with this ESG wave and the pressure of governments to achieve the zero emission goals that they set, we will most likely increase the demand for nuclear energy and hence for uranium. Now, uh, having said all of that, it, it's uh, very questionable uh, to, to it, it, it's very interesting to ask why prices are so low. <laughs> but uh, it was just a perfect storm for miners. So Fukushima was obviously the most impactful event. After the accident, Japan shut down all its nuclear reactors. So the world lost a big buyer of uranium and gained a seller uh, because Japan started selling part of its inventory. And um, uh, yes, it, it was taking delivery of some contracts, but it was also active in the spot market. 
And because Japan had a lot of inventories, it didn't help prices at all. Um, and, and miners uh, didn't stop mining at that time. They thought Japan would be back online very quickly and, and they kept on producing, uh, shooting themselves in the foot. Besides, the sentiment was very negative at that time. Um, uh, as I mentioned, Japan shut down all its nuclear reactors. Uh, Spain said that we're going to shut down by 2020, uh, Germany 2022, Belgium 2024, and, and all these reactors will be decommissioned. And on top of that, uh, there were a lot of pressure for environmental groups, uh, for politicians to either shut down existing reactors or at least not let any more be built. Still at that time, there was a program in place called Megatons to Megawatts, which ended in 2013, in which Russia was dismantling part of its nuclear arsenal, uh, downblending the highly enriched uranium and selling it to the US. So it was good for Russia because they made some money. Uh, it was good for the US because uh, they not only avoided that this highly enriched uranium fell into the hands of a rogue government or, or a terrorist organization, but they also have plenty of cheap uranium to power its nuclear reactors. It was just bad for the miners. Uh, moreover, Kazakhstan was ramping up its production. In the beginning of the century, Kazakhstan was responsible for less than 10% of the global uh, uranium supply, and now it's around 40%. Uh, they use a, a mining method called in-situ leaching, and they were able to reduce costs dramatically. And the Kazakh tank, uh, which is their currency, also uh, helped them a lot. And, uh, and last but not least, secondary supply and underfeeding were increasing. Now, um, I should stop here for a moment and, and explain briefly what underfeeding is. So um, uranium is found in, in different isotopes, and, and, and I'm going to simplify this, okay? So um, the most common is the 238, which corresponds to around 99.3%. Uranium-235 corresponds to 0.7%, and that's the one that's unstable and therefore the one we want, because you can bombard the nucleus, it can explode and generate all the energy. So when people say they are going to enrich uranium, enrich uranium is just to increase the content of the isotope 235 in the mix from 0.7% to 3, 4, 5%, whatever the nuclear reactor needs. And uh, the way you do it today is using centrifuges. These centrifuges spin at high speeds and they cannot stop. Uh, they, they are in some sense like nuclear reactors because uh, nuclear reactors are very expensive to build, but once they are built, they're relatively cheap to operate. So um, when the centrifuges start spinning, they cannot stop because if you stop them, you don't know where the plates are going to end up and you might, and you might wreck them. So uh, they have an incentive to do what's called underfeeding. And underfeeding occurs uh, when they feed less uranium into the centrifuges, hence the name uh, underfeeding. But these centrifuges spin for longer and they produce the same amount of enriched uranium using less uranium. And that uranium that they didn't use, it's theirs. So they can go to the market and sell this uranium as long as it makes financial sense to them. So uh, it is as if, it's, as if they create a whole new mine out of the blue. Now, uh, I heard this metaphor a few years ago, and uh, I think it helps explaining uh, underfeeding. Uh, imagine a miner as being a producer of oranges. Uh, the enrichers will be the guy who's going to squeeze the orange 
and the nuclear reactor is the one who's going to drink the orange juice. So the thing works like that. Uh, the miners give the enrichers uh, four oranges, the enrichers squeeze those oranges and give the nuclear reactor one glass of orange juice. Now, um, imagine suddenly these enrichers have a lot of capacity, uh, unused capacity. Uh, it, it was a mixture of new technology with less demand. Uh, remember, Japan was offline. So now they can take their time to squeeze these oranges. And they realize they don't need to squeeze four oranges. They can squeeze three oranges really well and produce the same amount of orange juice. And that orange that's left is theirs. So they can go to the market and sell that extra orange. And uh, this extra orange represents underfeeding. So um, underfeeding was increasing at that time. Um, so, as, as I mentioned, it was, was the perfect storm for miners. Uh, I mentioned um, underfeeding, Japan, the narrative, Kazakhstan, uh, the, the miners' lack of discipline, and the megatons to megawatts program. And where are we today? Well, today we're in a totally different place. So, uh, Japan is back online. There are nine reactors that have restarted although only four are operating today, uh, producing clean and abundant energy, and 18 more are waiting for approval uh, to get started. Uh, and, and the hard winter that they just faced is uh, reminding them about the importance of nuclear reactors. The program Megatons to Megawatts is over. It ended in 2013, and I doubt we are going to see anything like it over the next few years. Russia has already dismantled most of the nuclear weapons it wanted to dismantle, and there's not enough, not enough political uh, interest in, in doing something like it again. In, in terms of Kazakhstan, uh, Kazatomprom is now a listed company, and it announced that it would cut supply by the most it can, uh, which means 20% as per subsoil use agreements. Uh, and they have delivered on that, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm actually really impressed. Uh, besides, they started a, a marketing arm in Switzerland to sign long-term contracts with its clients and stop selling uranium to the spot market. Uh, and and it, it, it's not only uh, Kazatomprom, but Chemical has also suspended production of the biggest and the best mine in the world, uh, which is MacArthur River, since 2018. And, uh, and the second biggest mine in the world, Cigar Lake, is also offline because of COVID. Uh, it, it's actually impressive the similarities between now and the previous bull market where, when both mines, MacArthur River and Cigar Lake, were also offline. Uh, in terms of the narrative, the, the, the narrative also has changed substantially. So uh, now, that, now the talk is about uh, clean energy and, and, and the likes of Nature Conservancy are, are supporting it. And, and Michael Schellenberger is actually talking to everyone um, he can about the benefits of nuclear energy. And uh, uh, last but not least, underfeeding and secondary supply are diminishing. So with more reactors coming online and more demand for enrichment, there's less incentive for underfeeding. Um, I, I, I won't get into the details about the impact that FMRs might have on underfeeding because it's going to be too specific for this conversation. But the reality is that the, the future of the sector has never looked so bright. So uh, basically, that's why prices are so low, and that's the situation today. Yeah. Oh, uh, if, if, sorry, if I just mention uh, something that wasn't present in the last bull market, and, and it's really important in this one, is the supply discipline. And this was planned. 
but what wasn't planned is the supply disruption due to COVID. Add to this 10 years of underinvestment in the sector, the fact that a few mines are coming to the end of its lifespan and decreasing secondary supply, and you have the perfect setup for a massive upside. Yeah, thanks so much for the summary. I think that's, you know, that that gives us a really good foundation to work from. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, as investors, a lot of people have like a, a more Western focus. They say, okay, the United States isn't building a ton of new reactors. We've had Germany shutting down some reactors. Uh, but a lot of the growth that we're talking about here is actually from the East. We're seeing China, uh, you know, they're building reactors. India's building reactors. Uh, Middle East, South Korea. Uh, and then, as you point out, in the West, we in, instead we have extensions of existing reactors, and that that combination is what's kind of fueling this bull market. Uh, and you know, if you look at, for example, India, it's interesting because you know when we're talking about what what classifies as a as a clean source of energy, uh, you know, it's important to realize that you know people are talking about phasing out oil and gas, let alone the fact that that coal is still a dominant energy source throughout Asia. And, and so, for example, India gets two thirds of, of its electricity from coal. Uh, and if you look at you know the the air pollution in multiple cities, it's, it's extremely high from a lot of their production. And so a lot of these uh, countries have a pretty strong incentive to to find other sources of energy uh, besides uh, coal and and you know uh, e even you know they're looking to natural gas, they're looking to solar, they're looking to wind, and then and then nuclear fits into that as well. And you know another study I saw showed that. You know, in the United States alone, there's tens of thousands of deaths uh, from particulates associated with, uh, you know, burning fossil fuels. And so, let alone, you know, CO2 and all that, all that discussion, just the particulates, the really tangible stuff, uh, you know, it comes from the automobiles, it comes from the coal plants that we still have. Uh, and if you, if you extrapolate that across the entire world, you know, we're, we're up into the hundreds of thousands, perhaps the low millions of deaths worldwide that are attributed to these particulates. Uh, and so when we talk about, you know, some of the, the risks and concerns of nuclear, we have had a handful of, uh, you know, horrible events. But one of the analogies that I use is it's like, uh, it's like basically the public think, thinks of it in a similar way to how we think about airplanes. And so, for example, if you look at, you know, what is statistically the safest form of travel, it, airplanes are incredibly safe, especially if you're talking about commercial, you know, uh, high-end operations. And we don't really think twice about driving a car. And yet our chances of, of, of you know, having an accident and, and a fatal accident in, in an automobile is far, far higher. And whereas kind of like the nuclear to, to coal or nuclear to other sources of energy is kind of the same way, where the, the total number of people that have ever uh, been affected by nuclear energy, especially relative to the amount of energy produced, is extremely low over the multiple decades of operation, uh, whereas the, the number of deaths attributable to coal directly and indirectly is actually extremely high. Uh, but, you know, when it, whenever a nuclear rea uh, reactor does have a problem, it's, it's, you know, a catastrophic failure in a similar way that when an airplane goes down, even though it's extremely rare, uh, it makes global headlines for weeks. And so we're in that environment where it's had a bad rap for a while, uh, you know, sometimes for good reasons, but, you know, there's, there's all sorts of new technologies that can be developed to make, you know, safer reactors rather than relying on 1960s and 1970s technology. Uh, and we're, we're getting more and more interest of that out, out of Asia, especially because they want to be more energy independent. They want to have cleaner air wherever possible. Uh, and so, you know, I guess that the next logical question is to point out that, you know, uranium market is somewhat different than other commodities because these electric utilities, uh, they, they have long contracts with the, 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 the way that they get sourcing from generally. 
And uh, that plays a big role in the, in the overall su supply and demand balance. Uh, so you can, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on with the electric utilities at the current time? Are they, are they coming to market to buy or are, they, are we not at that point yet? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Sure. Um, well, great question, Lynn, and you raised some very interesting points here. Uh, obviously, the growth is uh, mostly in Asia. Uh, China, uh, if they want to achieve the, 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 uh, the, what they propose to achieve by 2060, uh, they have to increase nuclear production by 382%. So we're talking about uh, uh, over 200 nuclear reactors to be built there. It's an impressive growth. Um, now, in terms of utilities, um, uh, that's, that's actually uh, was the most important question for me when I started looking into the sector um, back in, in, in late 2017. Uh, if I can see that this market is going to go up big time, why can't the utilities see too? Uh, why aren't they contracting? Uh, where's the catch? So there's a few things here. Um, the, the, the first one is to know how utilities buy their uranium. Basically, there are three ways. Uh, the spot market, which entails purchase with delivers up to one year. Uh, the carry trade, which is a bit longer, up to three years, uh, maybe four. And, and the long-term market, which is where most of the contracts have been traditionally done. So what happened after Fukushima is that there was a lot of material available. So utilities didn't need to buy for the long term as uh, traders would offer to buy uh, material for them now and deliver in two, three, uh, maybe four years in the future. So the traders would just go to the spot market, buy the material, charge utilities for storage, interest, taxes, put their profits on top, and there you go. Uh, now, utilities then had visibility for the next three, four years and delayed contracting, and that was great for them. But now we are approaching a time uh, in which the spot market is not going to be sufficient. And many mines are either in care maintenance or just shut down completely. And it will get more and more difficult to find big amounts of material in the spot, which will reduce the carry trade. Besides the price differentials be between uh, spot and what some perceive as being the long-term price, has shrunk significantly, in, and this should also reduce the carry trade. And this will make utilities think about the long-term contracts again. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that this is the end of the carry trade market. I'm just saying that the focus will now go back to the long-term contract. Uh, the second thing is that few buyers have very little incentive to call the bottoming prices. Uh, it's not that they are going to get a massive bonus for that. And at, at the same time, they're not punished if they, don't, if they pay more for it, as long as that's the price, avail price available for, for everyone. Um, uh, what, just look at the conversion market, for instance. Uh, we saw the price go up from just over $4 a kGU to more than $21 today. Uh, it, it's a five-time increase, and no one got punished for paying more. Um, also, imagine the few buyer from a utility going to talk to his or her uh, risk officer or, or, or CFO 
and say, okay, let's let's buy uranium. I believe we should sign a long-term contract at $50 a pound. Uh, I've been looking at this market and uh, I have done some extra work and I believe prices are fair at $50. So uh, the risk manager or, or CFO will look at the prices on the screen and say, well, come on, it's less than $30 today. <laughs> are you telling me to pay like 60% more than, than the price I can see on my screen? It doesn't make sense. Get out of here. Uh, in, in addition, there's uncertainty in the sector itself. So Exelon is threatening to close two of the best-run utilities because of unfair competition from subsidized renewables. So, uh, you know, there's a lot going on. Um, another thing, uh, and, and, and that's interesting, uh, uh, people have to be aware of what's called the nuclear fuel cycle. And to simplify things, the nuclear fuel cycle is mining, conversion, enrichment, and fabrication. And each one of these processes can happen in a different part of the world. So for instance, uh, uranium mined here in Australia can be converted in Canada, uh, enriched in the UK, fabricated in Sweden to enter a nuclear reactor in Brazil. And uh, it, it normally takes something between 18 to 24 months for this cycle to be completed. Uh, you can think that if a nuclear reactor has inventory today that should last until 2023, they're pretty much working with the just-in-time process. And, and you don't want to operate a $10 billion facility using the just-in-time process. So it is normal that they carry a lot of inventories in different stages of the cycle uh, to last two years and, and most likely more. Uh, and if you look at the level of inventories that they carry today, uh, you're going to be shocked. It's, uh, it, in some cases, it's less than two years. It's the lowest it's been in, in over the past 15, maybe 20 years. So uh, I, I mentioned the nuclear fuel cycle because most people, even a few investors in the sector, think that the natural cycle is mining, conversion, enrichment, and fabrication. But in reality, many utilities do it backwards. So they contract their fuel, and then they work back to enrichment, conversion, and, and then uh, they, they look at their uranium demand. And, and because of a bottleneck in the conversion market, they couldn't make a decision on uranium purchases. And, uh, and in addition, last year uh, uh, was a very important year for utilities, not only because of the impact of COVID, but also because of the Russian suspension agreement which affected many of them directly. Um, after the resolution of the, of the RSA, uh, and, and now let's call it the, the almost normalization of the conversion markets, but at least there's light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, utilities can go back to the market to secure the uranium they need. Um, now, it, it, honestly, I, I talk to many utilities. So uh, if you ask them, is this a good price or, or would you contract here? I'm sure the answer would be yes, of course. But every single one of these utilities is dealing with a legacy of contracts. Last year was not a good year, uh, financially speaking, for them. And cash flows were down big time, some up to 30%. So they are facing a cash crunch and, and try to conserve cash. So what seems irrational to many, it's actually very rational and expected. And uh, in, in addition, the majority of the long-term contracts will expire uh, from 2025 onwards, and they should be renewed um, at least a couple of years in advance. 
Um, so we, we are actually coming from a period of abundance of uranium to a period of scarcity. And during this transition period, many people and, and utilities too, uh, still think there's a lot of uranium for them. Uh, it's, it's the good old recency bias, right? Um, uh, so utilities has got many things on the plate at the moment and uranium contracting uh, kind of took a back seat. Uh, but I believe they will be very keen to go back to the market again and start contracting uh, in the second half of this year. Uh, the most important thing for utilities is security of supply and COVID reminded them of that. Um, as, as I mentioned before, nuclear reactors are very expensive to build, but they are relatively cheap to run. So uranium prices do not affect them that much. Uh, their priorities are security of supply, diversity, and time. Cost is not the major issue here. And so when we look at, at the overall cost profile of the industry, uh, we see right now the spot price is under 30 long-term contracting prices higher than that. The production cost varies, of course, depending on what mine you're looking at, but in many cases is 50 or 60. Uh, and some of the, the, you know, the, the best mines are far lower than that. And so I guess walk us through some of the production profile that would happen. It, you know, if we start to get a price rise, uh, uh, you know, Cameco can, can restart uh, you know, their, uh, the mine you talked about. Uh, we also have uh, Kazatomprom uh, can, can conceivably increase production. And so where would that leave the market after there when you kind of look at the longer term of that supply and demand characteristic? Sure. Um, uh, well, uh, great question. And uh, yes, uh, uh, chemical can increase production and Kazatomprom can increase production substantially. But it doesn't matter. Uh, it still won't be enough. Uh, now, uh, for, for people who don't follow the sector, in 2017, Kazatom Prom announced that it was cutting its estimated production uh, by 20% from 2018 onwards. Um, according to the laws of Kazakhstan, uh, once a mining license is granted, mines, miners have to stick to their production guidelines with a plus or minus 20%. Uh, meaning, if, if, if the price of the commodity skyrockets and the miners want to take advantage of this, they can increase their estimated production by 20%, and the opposite if, if, if price collapse. So, Kazatom Prom kept, kept announcing the 20% cut, uh, showing discipline, which, which is great. And they will continue with this 20% reduction until 2022 at least. Uh, but let's see what they will announce uh, in the second half of this year. So uh, the 2022 production will be just under 50 million pounds. If they were to ramp up, uh, they could go up to, uh, let's say, 70 million pounds. But of course, the cost will go up too. So the only intelligent reason they would do this is if prices respond accordingly. Uh, but still, 70 million pounds is not enough. Uh, according to UXC, the uncovered demand by 2035 is about 1.4 mid billion actually pounds of uranium. So uh, one of the previous executives of Kazaton Prom said last year that the world will need another two Kazaton Proms by then. Uh, and early this month, uh, Tingitzo from Chemical said that the, the world will need six MacArthur rivers uh, or cigar lakes by then. Uh, and, and, and they were not joking. Uh, just a reminder that Cigar Lake, which produces around 18 million pounds of uranium per year, will be exhausted by 2028. Now, uh, I believe that price will go up substantially from here to give incentives for the miners to produce uranium again. And uh, 
this bull market is being driven by a destruction of supply, not only increased demand. And it's, it's just not press a button and the supply will, will come. You have to find the pounds. You have to permit and commission the mine. You have to invest in infrastructure, raise capital, hire people, and, and everything else that comes with it. And, and it takes years to do that, maybe 10, maybe more in, in the developed world. So people think that uh, they will have time to act, but they might not. Uh, according to trade tech, uh, the world needs uh, circa the 80% of the current projects. But experience shows us that uh, only one in over 50 projects become a producing mine. So I believe we're going to face a uranium run at some point uh, in this decade. And so from an investor perspective, if they if they you know they see this whole case laid out, it makes sense to them. Uh, and then they're looking to get into the space and trying to figure out the best way to play it. Do they, you know, they could focus on the producers, they could focus on the holding companies, they can focus on the smaller uh, exploration uh, uh, companies. And they also at this point probably look at the price chart and see that uh, it's it's funny, you have this multi-year decline in a lot of the, the you know the stock prices of, of the industry. Uh, and then just in the past uh, you know, few months, there's been this pretty big pop. Uh, and so the, the long-term returns have been pretty poor, uh, but then it, it, people can feel like they, they might have missed out on it. And so so both of us are long, so it, it's, it's kind of easier to ride at this point. But to say someone's coming into the industry and they see this price go up, would you say that they've missed the opportunity? So they look for dips? And then if they, if they do decide to allocate you know, do, what kind of companies do you think they should look for? Like, what are some of the key things and, and kind of what's, you know, what kind of size of the, the, the stock do you think is, is kind of the sweet spot? Sure. Uh, well, you're, you're right in the sense the the share price of many uranium miners have gone up uh, big time. But I still believe we are very, very early in the cycle. Uh, if, if you want to think about the sector overall, you can pretty much buy all listed companies for around $20 billion. So in other words, with $20 billion, you can buy the whole sector that provides the essential fuel that powers 11% of the world's electricity or, or, or 60% of the, of the clean energy produced. So if, if you want to put that into perspective, uh, Tesla, which is, uh, I don't know, a car company, a battery company, whatever it is, but uh, somehow it is related to ESG, is worth today almost $800 billion. This is 40 times all the uranium listed companies put together. So uh, the upside potential for this uh, sector is enormous. Now, um, in the previous bull market, which was less appealing than this one because there was no shortage of uranium, uh, which exists today. Uh, and, and just a step back here, uh, last year there were around 180 million pounds of uranium consumed in nuclear reactors, whilst there was only 120 million pounds produced by miners. So there's a gap between primary supply and demand. And this wasn't like that in the previous bull market. Uh, the, the previous bull market that started back in 03, 04, uh, it escalated when Chemical had to shut down MacArthur River and postpone the production of Cigar Lake uh, because of flooding. Uh, by the way, these two miners are, the two mines are not producing today. The, the similarities are huge. Uh, so Chemical, which was the biggest producer at that time, had a lot of complications and they saw the stock price soar by almost 1,400% over this period. But uh, you can just look at the supply. Um, there are no pounds coming from Canada or the US at the moment. Ranger, a mine that produced around 4 million pounds per year, was shut down last month. 
Cominac, a mine that produces around 3 million pounds, is going to be shut down next month. Cigar Lake, which is in carry maintenance, uh, will reach the end of its life in, in another seven years. And uh, Olympic Dam, which feeds the spot market, is not going to increase production. At, at the same time, China is building a fleet of nuclear reactors, same as India, Russia, Brazil, Argentina, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, you name it. Uh, so yes, uh, the, the share price are up. Uh, some, some of the juniors have at least doubled from, from a few months ago. But I still think that we are very early uh, in the cycle. Uh, this bull market should last for, for a few years, uh, in, in, in my opinion. And so if an investor wants to get in there, you know, if they look at the, the landscape there, there's, there's a couple of the, the major uh, miners that they can get into. Uh, then there's you know a bunch of smaller ones in different exchanges around the world. Uh, and then there are a couple ETFs out there that kind of give them a, a pretty broad uh, intersection, uh, you know, a, a cross-section of the industry. Uh, and so if you were an investor, uh, how would you play that? And of course, there's also funds, like you can talk about your fund as well. So you know, what are the kind of the, the main characteristics should they look for? Should they, should they be buying the large cap? Should they be buying the ETFs? Should they try to you know, uh, dabble in some of the smaller companies? Should they you know, invest in a fund? Like what do, you, what do you think are the kind of the pros and cons? And what are you really kind of looking for in this industry to make sure you get kind of the most uh, risk-adjusted returns out of the bunch? Sure, sure. Um... Well, I'm quite biased to, to, to answer this question because I obviously run an uranium fund and, and we've been very successful with it. So, uh, but uh, let, let's talk about the ETFs for, for a moment. Uh, ETFs are uh, an easy way to play whatever sector uh, one is interested in uh, with a few pitfalls, which uh, I won't discuss here. But uh, there, there are a couple of ETFs in the sector. Um, the, the, the URA, which is the biggest ETF, and it's probably the most famous one especially because it didn't have competition. But uh, this ETF is a disaster. They, they, they started back in 2010, uh, right before Fukushima, and they got the entire bear market in uranium. So uh, investors were losing money left and right. Uh, so what they did was to diversify its holdings uh, back in 2018 and buy things like Barrick Gold, which I really don't understand, and, and a few other companies that somehow uh, are or were involved in uh, nuclear energy. So uh, they have things like Macquarie Group, Sumitomo, Rio Tinto, uh, Hyundai Engineering, and, and uh, you know, which uh, th these companies do not represent uh, the uranium mining sector at all. Uh, now, they realized it was a mistake and decided to increase the percentage of uranium uh, miners in the ETF. So uh, before the, the 2018 restructure, they were 100% uranium miner, mining companies. Then from 18 to 20, they were 50-50 with uh, uranium mining companies and, and the nuclear cycle overall. But now they are 70% uranium mining companies. So uh, this is an important ETF to follow, not to invest in, but it's important to follow, uh, especially if you're invested in the junior mining companies, because part of the flows into this ETF end up going to the smaller companies and the impact can be uh, relevant. Now, another ETF is the URNM, which is uh, relatively new. Uh, they, they started with positions I didn't agree much, but I, I could understand what they did, what they did. Uh, positions like BHP, Rio Tinto, et cetera, uh, which they don't hold anymore. So um, uh, today, they are a much better player than URA for certain. Um, I, I wouldn't own a couple of stocks they own, but 
again, if, if what we are discussing is ETFs in the sector, this one would be better. Uh, and and they, they have been growing a lot. If I'm not mistaken, they, they, the IUM, uh, the Assets Under Management, has grown uh, by more than 30 times since inception just, just over a year ago. Uh, they're, they're still not as big as URA, but I believe they are on, on the right track. Uh, there's also the physical funds. Uh, physical funds are funds that hold uranium or UF6, and people can participate in the price of movements of the commodity. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to answer into the details, but uh, you know there are a couple here. One can buy uh, Yellow Cake, which is listed in London, or Uranium Participation Corporation, which is listed in North America. So uh, if people think that the price of the commodity is going to go up and do not want to be exposed to the risk of the miners, uh, he or she can buy the, uh, these funds. Um, for, well, I, I obviously run a uranium fund. I have been running it since uh, late 2018 when we, we set it up. Uh, and I'm deeply involved in the sector. So obviously, I'm very biased, as I mentioned before, uh, to say that an active fund uh, can provide better returns. Our, our fund has performed way better than the ETFs in the sector. And that's what one can expect. Uh, we spend a lot of time visiting companies, facilities, talking to everyone in the sector, and we participate in the conferences too, mostly as a speaker now. Uh, at, at, as you know, it's not easy to, to get information in the sector, and there are many little details that make a difference. So this contact is, is important to try to assemble the, the mosaic. Uh, sometimes you hear about a project and it's fascinating, but it will never fly for one reason or, or another. And you have to investigate it in detail. And few investors have the time and the resources to do it. So to me, it makes sense to have an allocation to an active fund um, instead of buying the miners themselves. But for people who want to go into the sector and do a deep dive, yeah, they, they'll, they'll probably find uh, good investments there too. And so I guess if you look forward now, we have the overall kind of view of, of where pretty much things have to go. You know, the one tail risk that I think about is what if we have another disaster and then a, a large country has to bring off, you know, a big portion of its fleet. That that kind of be the, the black swan to, to be concerned about. Are there other, any other like major risks that you'd say that they're in the industry that could they could kind of turn turn this around? And, you know, a, a, one analogy that people give is, or just one way that people describing it is that a lot of other, you know, commodities, it's kind of like somewhat optional. Like gold, for example, is is, is based on people's willingness to, to allocate to it as, as a store of value, where something like uranium is required to literally keep the lights on. Uh, and so it's, 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 you know, it's not so much like an if question, it's more of like a when question, as I've heard Rick Rule describe it. And so, but what, what are the potential things that could either, you know, greatly delay that or that could, you know, potentially throw it off course altogether? Sure. Uh, well, well, well said. Unfortunately, uranium is not a risk-free investment. So uh, I agree with you. I believe the, uh, the major risk will be uh, another nuclear accident. This will dampen sentiment and will most likely delay the recovering price that I expect. So having said that, nuclear accidents are not something that happen all the time. Uh, there were three in history, one with victims. And this one, Chernobyl, was a series of errors, one on top of the other. Uh, so I don't think we are going to see something like it again. Uh, people talk about Fukushima, and I say that Fukushima is the best reason why we need to have more nuclear reactors. 
almost 20,000 people died because of the tsunami. Around 1,000 people died because of the evacuation process. And no one had any injuries because of the nuclear accident. And uh, it's somehow interesting to see because Fukushima just entered the map because of the nuclear accident. And, uh, and the nuclear accident didn't hurt anyone. Uh, uh, you, you mentioned this in the beginning, but I like to compare it to sharks and insects. Insects kill more than 600,000 people every year on average around the globe, being it from transmission of diseases, allergies, or poison, whatever. Now, guess how many people on average die every year because of a shark attack? Uh, I'd probably guess dozens. Ten. <laughs> Ten people die on average. But when it happens, people close the beaches, put boats on the sea, they start discussing what has to be done, put nets to protect um, you know, swimmers and surfers, and, and all that. Uh, but they are quite tranquil around insects um, that kill 60,000 times more. It's the reality versus the perception. It's, it's the plane you mentioned. Uh, and also there's a high association between uh, nuclear reactors and nuclear bombs, which are completely different. Uh, but people get scared. And, and I believe the first step is to educate people. Uh, Bill Gates was on, on 60 Minutes last week, and he said exactly that. Uh, it's going to be a lot of work to convince people. Uh, I, for instance, was completely ignorant about nuclear energy until 2017. Um, uh, I, I used to think that it was very dangerous. It could explode, kill everyone, and all that. But the more I learned, the more I fell in love with nuclear energy. And I think it's the future. Uh, now, other, other things to consider is China not implementing its plan to build more nuclear reactors and things like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's not something that keeps me awake at night. Uh, even if we assume that no more nuclear reactors are going to be built, there's still more demand than supply. So this imbalance has to be sorted. And I think the only way it will is when prices go up. And I guess to wrap up, are there any kind of major uh, things we should look for as turning points or, or things that can kind of uh, serve as catalysts? And so, you know, I think uh, one thing we, uh, we were discussing before offline was the, the Honeywell Metropolis Works plant. And so, you know, what are the, what are the implications of, of that for the industry? And, there, and are there any other kind of major things we should look for uh, as, as this kind of overall, you know, market progresses? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Oh, good question, Lane. Uh, so, for people who, who are not following the sector closely, uh, Converdyne, which is a partnership between Honeywell and Global Atomics, uh, is a producer of UX6. So they convert the U308 that they receive into UF6. And due to the oversupply of material back in, in uh, uh, three years ago, they decided to shut down the conversion plant. Uh, it, it was not the first time, by the way. Uh, this plant is quite important and it accounts for a big chunk of the world's production capacity. So just like that, more than 10% of the conversion market disappeared. Now, 
the talk of bringing uh, of Honeywell bringing the the Metropolis plant back online has been going around for a while, and we expected it to be turned back on soon. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's big news, of course, uh, but everyone who follows the sector closely already expected it. So uh, the announcement said that the plant will restart production in 2023 uh, or a couple of years from now. So the news is good for the US because it will create a few jobs there, of course, but more importantly, it will be the only conversion facility in the US. So it is strategically important for the fuel cycle. Uh, but what does it mean to the uranium market? Uh, well, it's very good news, in my opinion. Uh, as I mentioned before, the nuclear fuel cycle is not as most people think, mining, conversion, enrichment, and fabrication. Uh, and utilities were worried last year about their enrichment and conversion needs. There was a big bottleneck in the conversion markets, and uh, this was one of the things that were uh, keeping utilities away from purchasing uranium. Uh, they, they, they had bigger problems, right? Uh, if you can't get conversion, how good would it be to get uranium? Uh, now that the Metropolis plant will reopen, it will most likely stabilize the conversion market. And it will, in my opinion, pave the way for utilities to start negotiating long-term contracts again. But one thing I would like to mention is the explosive, if I might say that, but the explosive potential of this market. Uh, the conversion market started being more disciplined back in 2014 and the miners in, in 2016. Um, look, back in, in 2017, everyone thought there was a lot of um, available conversion. So Converdine was shut and overnight the world lost a lot of their conversion capacity and everyone was tranquil. Now, since then, conversion has risen from a low of just over $4 a kGU to $21.50 today. This is an increase of five times, and utilities are paying for it because they need it. Uranium represents very little in the overall cost of running a utility, and its price can go up big time. And so, are there any other like um, kind of developments that you follow? Like, for example, you know, I've seen discussions about. I guess like other use cases. So we we have the you know uh, like uh, generating electricity is the major use case here. Uh, but some folks are talking about, for example, uh, changing uh, container ships to run on nuclear energy. And so of course we have uh, you know aircraft carriers, for example, run on nuclear, but they're you know they're multi-billion-dollar ships, and so they can afford that that really high capex. Uh, whereas cheaper, very large ships, you know, they run on fuel. And uh, whereas, uh, you know, many people that are, are, are looking more towards uh, environmental, uh, you know, uh, uh, to optimize that have proposed that it, it's worth the expense to uh, have a more nuclear fleet uh, for some of these, uh, you know, kind of uh, large transportation ships. Do you factor things like that into your analysis as either upside potentials or do you just kind of, uh, you know, just focus on what, what's being built, say, in the next, you know, five or 10 years? Yeah, I, I just focus on the next five years and uh, nuclear reactors are very predictable. So you know which ones are going to be the commission, you know which ones are going to be built. And uh, j just so you know, we haven't uh, included any SMRs in our uh, analysis. And SMRs is the thing that's going to start, um, well, hitting the market in, from 2027 onwards and has a huge potential. Even countries like Australia which do not use nuclear energy yet, can go back to, well, can, can, can move their energy source to, to uh, small nuclear reactors, uh, which was 
which is a great news to, to Australians and to the sector, but we haven't included any of those into our calculations. This, this is something that's not going to move the needle too much. Uh, and especially, I don't think it, they will impact the market too much in this cycle. Yeah, and one of the one of the overall interesting things is even you know the, like when we talk about kind of newer technologies, you know all those three plants you talked about that had those disasters, even though they all occurred in different decades, they all were relying on that really old technology. You know they were they were all built around the, the same you know decade or so, and so as we go forward, there there's kind of more uh, you know kind of developments happening to make smaller reactors, to make safer reactors, and to basically bring it up to the 21st century rather than keep relying on kind of mid-20th century technologies. Um, you know, I guess as we close out now, I, I would just point out that, you know, one of the, if we talk about, if we kind of take a step back and look at kind of portfolio construction or kind of macro analysis, you know, it, it can't really be stressed enough to the, the importance of having totally uncorrelated investments. Uh, and, so, for example, if you look out of the past several years, you know, we had gold uh, do really good from 2018 to 2020. And then, you know, the, the second half of 2020 till now, we've had kind of Bitcoin on its ace, uh, you know, like asymptotic, just a huge run. We had, uh, you know, different periods where emerging markets do well. We have different periods where, you know, growth stocks do very well from yields going down. And then if yields start going back up, we have a reversal. And so there's all these kind of different periods where, where you know, some types of things kind of outperform others. And if you're kind of, you know, overweight on, say, a standard 60-40 portfolio, uh, you kind of have a couple risks that could kind of make your whole portfolio lackluster for a couple of years. But having some of these kind of just side bets, even a small percentage of a capital, investing in something like uranium, uh, along with these other kind of just uncorrelated things, you know, I think that can give a lot of advantage to a portfolio. So I, I, if you were to look, talk about allocation, you know, what kind of percentages do you think are, is, would be appropriate, for example, to have, for someone to allocate uh, to this sector? Sure. Well, um, I wouldn't be a parameter because I have more than 70% of my net worth invested in uranium. But uh, uh, I, I totally agree with you. It's something that people are not paying attention to, but it's the uncorrelated asset. It's the uncorrelated asset. So even last year during the, the biggest uh, the crisis that we faced in March, uh, uranium prices, not, not the miners, but uranium prices didn't go down. Even gold went down for a week or so. Uh, but uranium just uh, was indifferent to, to the whole noise. And uh, if, if you look from 2011 to 2018, everything went up. Uh, real estate, um, equities, uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, whatever you want. Uh, and then in 28, but uranium, right? Now in, in 2018, everything came crashing down to the end of the year, um, but uranium went up by 30%. Now, come 2019, and everything went back up again, but uranium. Now, in 2020, uh, until the, the first half of the year, uh, uranium was up big time. Well, actually, until the, the end of the first quarter, uh, uranium was okay, uh, slightly up, and everything else came crashing down. So, yeah, I think it's the perfect uncorrelated asset. It has its own dynamics. It's a supply and demand issue. As I mentioned before, it's a very easy call. You have demand increasing, supply decreasing, the, the end buyer is almost indifferent to the price it pays, and the price is very wrong. So I, I see it as a perfect uncorrelated asset. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing all this with us. Uh, where can people find you if they want to learn more or, or see some of your writings or, or things you're sharing with people? 
Sure. Well, I'm active on Twitter, uh, Marcelo Lopez, and they can, if they want, they can send me an email, marcelo at l2capital.com.br, and I'll be more than happy to, to answer them. Yep. Thanks so much. No, thank you, Ling. Great pleasure to talk to you, and thanks for your vision. Hey there, since you got to the end, I'm guessing you liked the video. And that's probably because we don't just turn on a camera and film, we work really hard on getting the narrative flow just right. And that's why many finance companies are actually now hiring Real Vision to make videos for them. One of our recent client videos just hit 100,000 organic views on YouTube, and there were no kittens in sight. So if you want to find out how Real Vision can make a video for your company, just email us at customvideo at realvision.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.